identified until 1827 and did not enter common household use until the late 1960s, when tin cans and tin foil yielded to aluminum cans and, of course, aluminum foil. I'd bet most old people you know still call it tin foil. Polished aluminum makes a near-perfect reflector of visible light and is the coating of choice for nearly all telescope mirrors today. Titanium is 1.7 times denser than aluminum, but it's more than twice as strong. So titanium, the ninth most abundant element in Earth's crust, has become a modern darling for many applications, such as military aircraft components and prosthetics that require a light, strong metal for their tasks. In most cosmic places, the number of oxygen atoms exceeds that of carbon. After every carbon atom has latched onto the available oxygen atoms, forming carbon monoxide or carbon dioxide, the leftover oxygen bonds with other things like titanium. The spectra of red stars are riddled with features traceable to titanium oxide, which itself is no stranger to stars on Earth. Star sapphires and rubies owe their radiant asterisms to titanium oxide impurities in their crystal lattice. Furthermore, the white paint used for telescope domes features titanium oxide, which happens to be highly reflective in the infrared part of the spectrum, greatly reducing the heat accumulated from sunlight in the air surrounding the telescope. At nightfall, with the dome open, the air temperature near the telescope rapidly equals the temperature of the nighttime air allowing light from stars and other cosmic objects to be sharp and clear. And, while not directly named for a cosmic object, titanium derives from the titans of Greek mythology. Titan is Saturn's largest moon. By many measures, iron ranks as the most important element in the universe. Massive stars manufacture elements in their core— in sequence from helium to carbon to oxygen to nitrogen and so forth, all the way up the periodic table to iron. With 26 protons and at least as many neutrons in its nucleus, iron's odd distinction comes from having the least total energy per nuclear particle of any element. This means something quite simple. If you split iron atoms via fission, they will absorb energy. And if you combine iron atoms via fusion they will also absorb energy. Stars, however, are in the business of making energy. As high-mass stars manufacture and accumulate iron in their cores, they are nearing death. Without a fertile source of energy, the star collapses under its own weight and instantly rebounds in a stupendous supernova explosion, outshining a billion suns for more than a week. The soft metal gallium has such a low melting point that, like cocoa butter, it will liquefy on contact with your hand. Apart from this parlor demo, gallium is not interesting to astrophysicists except as one of the ingredients in the gallium chloride experiments used to detect elusive neutrinos from the sun. A huge, hundred-ton underground vat of liquid gallium chloride is monitored for any collisions between neutrinos and gallium nuclei, turning it into germanium. The encounter emits a spark of X-ray light that is measured every time a nucleus gets slammed. The long-standing solar neutrino problem, where fewer neutrinos were detected than predicted by solar theory, was solved using telescopes such as this. Every form of the element technetium is radioactive. 
Not surprisingly, it's found nowhere on Earth except in particle accelerators, where we make it on demand. Technetium carries this distinction in its name, which derives from the Greek technetos, meaning artificial. For reasons not fully understood, technetium lives in the atmospheres of a select subset of red stars. This alone would not be cause for alarm, except that technetium has a half-life of a mere two million years, which is much, much shorter than the age and life expectancy of the stars in which it's found. In other words, the star cannot have been born with this stuff, for if it were, there would be none left by now. There is also no known mechanism to create technetium in a star's core and have it dredge itself up to the surface where it is observed, which has led to exotic theories that have yet to achieve consensus in the astrophysics community. Along with osmium and platinum, iridium is one of the three heaviest, densest elements on the table. Two cubic feet of it weighs as much as a Buick, which makes iridium one of the world's best paperweights, able to defy all known office fans. Iridium is also the world's most famous smoking gun. A thin layer of it can be found worldwide at the famous Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, formerly known as the KT boundary in geologic strata, dating from 65 million years ago. Not so coincidentally, that's when every land species larger than a carry-on suitcase went extinct, including the legendary dinosaurs. Iridium is rare on Earth's surface, but relatively common in six-mile metallic asteroids, which, upon colliding with Earth, vaporized on impact, scattering their atoms across Earth's surface. So, whatever might have been your favorite theory for offing the dinosaurs, a killer asteroid the size of Mount Everest from outer space should be at the top of your list. I don't know how Albert would have felt about this, but an unknown element was discovered in the debris of the first hydrogen bomb test in the Eniwetok Atoll in the South Pacific on November 1, 1952, and was named Einsteinium in his honor. I might have named it Armageddium instead. Meanwhile, ten entries in the periodic table get their names from objects that orbit the sun. Phosphorus comes from the Greek for light-bearing, and was the ancient name for the planet Venus when it appeared before sunrise in the dawn sky. Selenium comes from Selene, which is Greek for the moon, named so because in ores it was always associated with the element tellurium, which had already been named for Earth, from the Latin tellus. On January 1, 1801, the Italian astronomer Giuseppe Piazzi discovered a new planet orbiting the Sun in the suspiciously large gap between Mars and Jupiter. Keeping with the tradition of naming planets after Roman gods, the object was named Ceres, after the goddess of harvest. Ceres is, of course, the root of the word cereal. At the time, there was sufficient excitement in the scientific community for the first element discovered after this date to be named Cerium in its honor. Two years later, another planet was discovered orbiting the Sun in the same gap as Ceres. This one was named Pallas for the Roman goddess of wisdom, and like Cerium before it, the first element discovered thereafter was named Palladium in its honor. The naming party would end a few decades later after dozens more of these planets were discovered sharing the same orbital zone. Closer analysis revealed that these objects were much, much smaller than the smallest known planets. 
a new swath of real estate had been discovered in the solar system, populated by small, craggy chunks of rock and metal. Ceres and Pallas were not planets. They are asteroids, and they live in the asteroid belt, now known to contain hundreds of thousands of objects, somewhat more than the number of elements in the periodic table. The metal Mercury, liquid and runny at room temperature, and the planet Mercury, the fastest of all planets in the solar system, are both named for the speedy Roman messenger god of the same name. Thorium is named for Thor, the hunky, lightning-bolt-wielding Scandinavian god who corresponds with lightning-bolt-wielding Jupiter in Roman mythology. And, by Jove, Hubble Space Telescope images of Jupiter's polar regions reveal extensive electrical discharges deep within its turbulent cloud layers. Alas, Saturn, my favorite planet, has no element named for it, but Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are famously represented. The element uranium was discovered in 1789 and named in honor of the planet discovered by William Herschel just eight years earlier. All isotopes of uranium are unstable, spontaneously decaying to lighter elements, a process accompanied by the release of energy. The first atomic bomb ever used in warfare had uranium as its active ingredient and was dropped by the United States incinerating the Japanese city of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. With 92 protons packed in its nucleus, uranium is widely described as the largest naturally occurring element, although trace amounts of larger elements can be found naturally where uranium ore is mined. If Uranus deserved an element named in its honor, then so did Neptune. Unlike uranium, however, which was discovered shortly after the planet, Neptunium was discovered in 1940 in the Berkeley cyclotron a full 97 years after the German astronomer John Gall found Neptune in a spot on the sky predicted by the French mathematician Joseph Le Verrier after studying Uranus's odd orbital behavior. Just as Neptune comes right after Uranus in the solar system, so too does Neptunium come right after Uranium in the periodic table of elements. The Berkeley cyclotron discovered or manufactured many elements not found in nature, including plutonium, which directly follows Neptunium in the table and was named for Pluto, which Clyde Tombaugh discovered at Arizona's Lowell Observatory in 1930. Just as with the discovery of Ceres 129 years earlier, excitement prevailed. Pluto was the first planet discovered by an American and, in the absence of better data, was widely regarded as an object of commensurate size and mass to Earth, if not Uranus or Neptune. As our attempts to measure Pluto's size became more and more refined, Pluto kept getting smaller and smaller. Our knowledge of Pluto's dimensions did not stabilize until the late 1980s. We now know that cold, icy Pluto is by far the smallest of the nine, with the diminutive distinction of being littler than the solar system's six largest moons. And like the asteroids, hundreds more objects were later discovered in the outer solar system, with orbits similar to that of Pluto, signaling the end of Pluto's tenure as a planet and the revelation of a heretofore undocumented reservoir of small icy bodies called the Kuiper Belt of Comets, to which Pluto belongs. In this regard, one could argue that Ceres, Pallas, and Pluto slipped into the periodic table under false pretenses. Unstable, weapons-grade plutonium was the active ingredient in the atomic bomb that the United States exploded over the Japanese city of Nagasaki, 
just three days after Hiroshima, bringing a swift end to World War II. Small quantities of non-weapons-grade radioactive plutonium can be used to power radioisotope thermoelectric generators, sensibly abbreviated as RTGs, for spacecraft that travel to the outer solar system, where the intensity of sunlight has diminished below the level usable by solar panels. One pound of plutonium will generate 10 million kilowatt-hours of heat energy, which is enough to power an incandescent light bulb for 11,000 years or a human being for just as long if we ran on nuclear fuel instead of grocery store food. So ends our cosmic journey through the periodic table of elements, right to the edge of the solar system and beyond. For reasons I've yet to understand, many people don't like chemicals, which might explain the perennial movement to rid foods of them. Perhaps sesquipedalian chemical names just sound dangerous. But in that case, we should blame the chemists and not the chemicals themselves. Personally, I'm quite comfortable with chemicals anywhere in the universe. My favorite stars, as well as my best friends, are all made of them. Chapter 8 On Being Round Apart from crystals and broken rocks, not much else in the cosmos naturally comes with sharp angles. While many objects have peculiar shapes, the list of round things is practically endless and ranges from simple soap bubbles to the entire observable universe. Of all shapes, spheres are favored by the action of simple physical laws. So prevalent is this tendency that often we assume something is spherical in a mental experiment just to glean basic insight, even when we know that the object is decidedly non-spherical. In short, if you do not understand the spherical case, then you cannot claim to understand the basic physics of the object. Spheres in nature are made by forces such as surface tension that want to make objects smaller in all directions. The surface tension of the liquid that makes a soap bubble squeezes air in all directions. It will, within moments of being formed, enclose the volume of air using the least possible surface area. This makes the strongest possible bubble, because the soapy film will not have to be spread any thinner than is absolutely necessary. Using freshman-level calculus, you can show that the one and only shape that has the smallest surface area for an enclosed volume is a perfect sphere. In fact, billions of dollars could be saved annually on packaging materials if all shipping boxes and all packages of food in the supermarket were spheres. For example... The contents of a super jumbo box of Cheerios would fit easily into a spherical carton with a four and a half inch radius. But practical matters prevail. Nobody wants to chase packaged food down the aisle after it rolls off the shelves. On Earth, one way to make ball bearings is to machine them or drop molten metal in pre-measured amounts into the top of a long shaft. The blob will typically undulate until it settles into the shape of a sphere, but it needs sufficient time to harden before hitting the bottom. On orbiting space stations where everything is weightless, you gently squirt out precise quantities of molten metal and you have all the time you need. The beads just float there while they cool until they harden as perfect spheres, with surface tension doing all the work for you. For large cosmic objects, energy and gravity conspire to turn objects into spheres. 
Gravity is the force that serves to collapse matter in all directions. But gravity does not always win. Chemical bonds of solid objects are strong. The Himalayas grew against the force of Earth's gravity because of the resilience of crustal rock. But before you get excited about Earth's mighty mountains, you should know that the spread in height from the deepest undersea trenches to the tallest mountains is about a dozen miles. Yet Earth's diameter is nearly 8,000 miles. So, contrary to what it looks like to teeny humans crawling on its surface, Earth as a cosmic object is remarkably smooth. If you had a super-duper jumbo gigantic finger and you dragged it across Earth's surface, oceans and all, Earth would feel as smooth as a cue ball. Expensive globes that portray raised portions of Earth's land masses to indicate mountain ranges are gross exaggerations of reality. This is why, in spite of Earth's mountains and valleys, as well as being slightly flattened from pole to pole, when viewed from space, Earth is indistinguishable from a perfect sphere. Earth's mountains are also puny when compared with some other mountains in the solar system. The largest on Mars, Olympus Mons, is 65,000 feet tall and nearly 300 miles wide at its base. It makes Alaska's Mount McKinley look like a molehill. The cosmic mountain-building recipe is simple. The weaker the gravity on the surface of an object, the higher its mountains can reach. Mount Everest is about as tall as a mountain on Earth can grow before the lower rock layers succumb to their own plasticity under the mountain's weight. If a solid object has low enough surface gravity, chemical bonds in its rocks will resist the force of their own weight. When this happens, almost any shape is possible. Two famous celestial non-spheres are Phobos and Deimos, the Idaho potato-shaped moons of Mars. On 13-mile-long Phobos, the bigger of the two moons, a 150-pound person would weigh a mere four ounces. In space, surface tension always forces a small blob of liquid to form a sphere. Whenever you see a small, solid object that is suspiciously spherical, you can assume it formed in a molten state. If the blob has very high mass, then it could be composed of almost anything, and gravity will ensure that it forms a sphere. Big and massive blobs of gas in the galaxy can coalesce to form near-perfect gaseous spheres called stars. But if a star finds itself orbiting too close to another object whose gravity is significant, the spherical shape can be distorted as its material gets stripped away. By too close, I mean too close to the object's Roche lobe. Named for the mid-19th century mathematician Edouard Roche, who made detailed studies of gravity fields in the vicinity of double stars. The Roche lobe is a theoretical dumbbell-shaped bulbous double envelope that surrounds any two objects in mutual orbit. If gaseous material from one object passes out of its own envelope, then the material will fall towards the second object. This occurrence is common among binary stars when one of them swells to become a red giant and overfills its Roche lobe. The red giant distorts into a distinctly non-spherical shape that resembles an elongated Hershey's kiss. Moreover, every now and then, one of the two stars is a black hole, whose location is rendered visible by the flaying of its binary companion. The spiraling gas, after having passed from the giant across its Roche lobe, 
heats to extreme temperatures and is rendered aglow before descending out of sight into the black hole itself. The stars of the Milky Way galaxy trace a big, flat circle, with a diameter-to-thickness ratio of 1,000 to 1. Our galaxy is flatter than the flattest flapjacks ever made. In fact, its proportions are better represented by a crepe, or tortilla. No, the Milky Way's disk is not a sphere, but it probably began as one. We can understand the flatness by assuming the galaxy was once a big, spherical, slowly rotating ball of collapsing gas. During the collapse, the ball spun faster and faster, just as spinning figure skaters do when they draw their arms inward to increase their rotation rate. The galaxy naturally flattened pole to pole, while the increasing centrifugal forces in the middle prevented collapse at mid-plane. Yes, if the Pillsbury Doughboy were a figure skater, then fast spins would be a high-risk activity. Any stars that happen to be formed within the Milky Way cloud before collapse maintained large plunging orbits. The remaining gas, which easily sticks to itself, like a mid-air collision of two hot marshmallows, got pinned at the mid-plane and is responsible for all subsequent generations of stars, including the Sun. The current Milky Way, which is neither collapsing nor expanding, is a gravitationally mature system where one can think of the orbiting stars above and below the disk as the skeletal remains of the original spherical gas cloud. This general flattening of objects that rotate is why Earth's pole-to-pole -pole diameter is smaller than its diameter at the equator. Not by much. Three-tenths of one percent, about 26 miles. But Earth is small, mostly solid, and doesn't rotate all that fast. At 24 hours per day, Earth carries anything on its equator at a mere 1,000 miles per hour. Consider the jumbo, fast-rotating, gaseous planet Saturn, completing a day in just 10 and a half hours. Its equator revolves at 22,000 miles per hour, and its pole-to-pole -pole dimension is a full 10% flatter than its middle. A difference noticeable even through a small amateur telescope. Flattened spheres are more generally called oblate spheroids, while spheres that are elongated pole to pole are called prolate. In everyday life, hamburgers and hot dogs make excellent, although somewhat extreme, examples of each shape. I don't know about you, but the planet Saturn pops into my mind with every bite of a hamburger I take. We use the effect of centrifugal forces on matter to offer insight into the rotation rate of extreme cosmic objects. Consider pulsars. With some rotating at upward of a thousand revolutions per second, we know that they cannot be made of household ingredients, or they would spin themselves apart. In fact, if a pulsar rotated any faster, say 4,500 revolutions per second, its equator would be moving at the speed of light which tells you that this material is unlike any other. To picture a pulsar, imagine the mass of the sun packed into a ball the size of Manhattan. If that's hard to do, then maybe it's easier for you to imagine stuffing about a 100 million elephants into a chapstick casing. To reach this density, you must compress all the empty space that atoms enjoy around their nucleus and among their orbiting electrons. Doing so will crush nearly all negatively charged electrons into positively charged protons, creating a ball of neutrally charged neutrons, 
with a crazy high surface gravity. Under such conditions, a neutron star's mountain range needn't be any taller than the thickness of a sheet of paper for you to exert more energy climbing it than a rock climber on Earth would exert ascending a 3,000-mile-high cliff. In short, where gravity is high, the high places tend to fall, filling in the low places, a phenomenon that sounds almost biblical in preparing the way for the Lord. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall be made level, the rugged places a plain. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 4. That's a recipe for a sphere if there ever was one. For all these reasons, we expect pulsars to be the most perfectly shaped spheres in the universe. For rich clusters of galaxies, the overall shape can offer deep astrophysical insight. Some are raggedy, others are stretched thin in filaments, yet others form vast sheets. None of these have settled into a stable, spherical gravitational shape. Some are so extended that the 14-billion-year age of the universe is insufficient time for their constituent galaxies to make one crossing of the cluster. We conclude that the cluster was born that way because the mutual gravitational encounters between and among galaxies have had insufficient time to influence the cluster's shape. But other systems, such as the beautiful coma cluster of galaxies, which we met in our chapter on dark matter, tells us immediately that gravity has shaped the cluster into a sphere. As a consequence, you are as likely to find a galaxy moving in one direction as in any other. Whenever this is true, the cluster cannot be rotating all that fast. Otherwise, we would see some flattening as we do in our own Milky Way. The coma cluster, once again like the Milky Way, is also gravitationally mature. In astrophysical vernacular, such systems are said to be relaxed, which means many things, including the fortuitous fact that the average velocity of galaxies in the cluster serves as an excellent indicator of the total mass. Whether or not the total mass of the system is supplied by the objects used to get the average velocity. It's for these reasons that gravitationally relaxed systems make excellent probes of non-luminous dark matter. Allow me to make an even stronger statement. Were it not for relaxed systems, the ubiquity of dark matter may have remained undiscovered to this day. The sphere to end all spheres, the largest and most perfect of them all, is the entire observable universe. In every direction we look, galaxies recede from us at speeds proportional to their distance. As we saw in the first few chapters, this is the famous signature of an expanding universe, discovered by Edwin Hubble in 1929. When you combine Einstein's relativity and the velocity of light and the expanding universe and the spatial dilution of mass and energy as a consequence of that expansion, there is a distance in every direction from us, where the recession velocity for a galaxy equals the speed of light. At this distance and beyond, light from all luminous objects loses all its energy before reaching us. The universe beyond this spherical edge is thus rendered invisible and, as far as we know, unknowable. There's a variation of the ever-popular multiverse idea in which the multiple universes that comprise it are not separate universes entirely, but isolated, non-interacting pockets of space within one continuous fabric of space-time. Like multiple ships at sea, far enough away from one another, so that their circular horizons do not intersect. 
as far as any one ship is concerned, without further data, it's the only ship on the ocean. Yet they all share the same body of water. Spheres are indeed fertile theoretical tools that help us gain insight into all manner of astrophysical problems. But one should not be a sphere zealot. I'm reminded of the half-serious joke about how to increase milk production on a farm. An expert in animal husbandry might say, consider the role of the cow's diet. An engineer might say, consider the design of the milking machines. But it's the astrophysicist who says, consider a spherical cow. Chapter 9. Invisible Light And therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 5 Before 1800, the word light, apart from its use as a verb and an adjective, referred just to visible light. But early that year, the English astronomer William Herschel observed some warming that could only have been caused by a form of light invisible to the human eye. Already an accomplished observer, Herschel had discovered the planet Uranus in 1781 and was now exploring the relation between sunlight, color, and heat. He began by placing a prism in the path of a sunbeam. Nothing new there. Sir Isaac Newton had done that back in the 1600s, leading him to name the familiar seven colors of the visible spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Yes, the colors do indeed spell Roy G. Biv. But Herschel was inquisitive enough to wonder what the temperature of each color might be. So he placed thermometers in various regions of the rainbow and showed, as he suspected, that different colors registered different temperatures. Well-conducted experiments require a control, a measurement where you expect no effect at all and which serves as a kind of idiot check on what you are measuring. For example, if you wonder what effect beer has on a tulip plant, then also nurture a second tulip plant identical to the first, but give it water instead. If both plants die, if you killed them both, then you can't blame the alcohol. That's the value of a control sample. Herschel knew this and laid a thermometer outside of the spectrum, adjacent to the red, expecting to read no more than room temperature throughout the experiment. But that's not what happened. The temperature of his control thermometer rose even higher than in the red. Herschel wrote, I conclude that the full red falls still short of the maximum of heat, which perhaps lies even a little beyond visible refraction. In this case, Radiant heat will at least partly, if not chiefly consist, if I may be permitted the expression, of invisible light. That is to say, of rays coming from the sun that have such a momentum as to be unfit for vision. Holy shit! Herschel inadvertently discovered infrared light, a brand new part of the spectrum found just below red, reported in the first of his four papers on the subject. Herschel's revelation was the astronomical equivalent of Antony von Leeuwenhoek's discovery of, quote, many little living animacules, very prettily a-moving, in the smallest drop of lake water. 
Leeuwenhoek discovered single-celled organisms, a biological universe. Herschel discovered a new band of light, both hiding in plain sight. Other investigators immediately took up where Herschel left off. In 1801, the German physicist and pharmacist Johann Wilhelm Ritter found yet another band of invisible light. But instead of a thermometer, Ritter placed a little pile of light-sensitive silver chloride in each visible color, as well as in the dark area next to the violet end of the spectrum. Sure enough, the pile in the unlit patch darkened more than the pile in the violet patch. What's beyond violet? Ultraviolet. Better known today as UV, filling out the entire electromagnetic spectrum in order of low energy and low frequency to high energy and high frequency, we have radio waves, microwaves, infrared, Roy G. Biv, ultraviolet, X-rays, and gamma rays. Modern civilization has deftly exploited each of these bands for countless household and industrial applications, making them familiar to us all. After the discovery of UV and IR, sky watching didn't change overnight. The first telescope designed to detect invisible parts of the electromagnetic spectrum wouldn't be built for a hundred and thirty years. That's well after radio waves, X-rays, and gamma rays had been discovered. And well after the German physicist Heinrich Hertz had shown that the only real difference among the various kinds of light is the frequency of the waves in each band. In fact, credit Hertz for recognizing that there is such a thing as an electromagnetic spectrum. In his honor, the unit of frequency in waves per second for anything that vibrates, including sound, has duly been named the Hertz. Mysteriously, astrophysicists were a bit slow to make the connection between the newfound invisible bands of light and the idea of building a telescope that might see those bands from cosmic sources. Delays in detector technology surely mattered here, but hubris must take some of the blame. How could the universe possibly send us light that our marvelous eyes cannot see? For more than three centuries, from Galileo's day until Edwin Hubble's. Building a telescope meant only one thing: making an instrument to catch visible light, enhancing our biologically endowed vision. A telescope is merely a tool to augment our meager senses, enabling us to get better acquainted with faraway places. The bigger the telescope, the dimmer the objects it brings into view. The more perfectly shaped its mirrors, the sharper the image it makes. The more sensitive its detectors, the more efficient its observations. But in all cases, every bit of information a telescope delivers to the astrophysicist comes to Earth on a beam of light. Celestial happenings, however, don't limit themselves to what's convenient for the human retina. Instead, they typically emit varying amounts of light simultaneously in multiple bands. So, without telescopes and their detectors tuned across the entire spectrum. Astrophysicists would remain blissfully ignorant of some mind-blowing stuff in the universe. Take an exploding star, a supernova. It's a cosmically common and seriously high-energy event that generates prodigious quantities of X-rays. Sometimes bursts of gamma rays and flashes of ultraviolet accompany the explosions, and there's never a shortage of visible light. Long after the explosive gases cool, the shock waves dissipate. And the visible light fades. 
the supernova remnant keeps on shining in the infrared while pulsing in radio waves. That's where pulsars come from, the most reliable timekeepers in the universe. Most stellar explosions take place in distant galaxies, but if a star were to blow up within the Milky Way, its death throes would be bright enough for everyone to see, even without a telescope. But nobody on Earth saw the invisible X-rays or gamma rays from the last two supernova spectaculars hosted by our galaxy, one in 1572 and another in 1604. Yet their wondrous visible light was widely reported. The range of wavelengths, or frequencies, that comprise each band of light strongly influences the design of the hardware used to detect it. That's why no single combination of telescope and detector can simultaneously see every feature of such explosions. But the way around that problem is simple. Gather all observations of your object, perhaps obtained by colleagues in multiple bands of light, then assign visible colors to invisible bands of interest creating one meta-multi-band image. That's precisely what Geordi from the television series Star Trek The Next Generation sees. With that power of vision, you miss nothing. Only after you identify the band of your astrophysical affections can you begin to think about the size of your mirror, the materials you'll need to make it, the shape and surface it must have, and the kind of detector you'll need. X-ray wavelengths, for example, are extremely short, so if you're accumulating them, your mirror had better be super smooth, lest imperfections in the surface distort them. But if you're gathering long radio waves, your mirror could be made of chicken wire that you've bent with your hands, because the irregularities in the wire would be much smaller than the wavelengths you're after. Of course, you also want plenty of detail, high resolution, so your mirror should be as big as you can afford to make it. In the end, your telescope must be much, much wider than the wavelength of light you aim to detect. And nowhere is this need more evident than in the construction of a radio telescope. Radio telescopes, the earliest non-visible light telescopes ever built, are an amazing subspecies of observatory. The American engineer Carl G. Jansky built the first successful one between 1929 and 1930. It looked a bit like the moving sprinkler system on a farmerless farm, made from a series of tall rectangular metal frames secured with wooden cross supports and flooring. It turned in place like a merry-go-round, but on wheels built with spare parts from a Model T Ford. Jansky had tuned the hundred-foot-long contraption to a wavelength of about 15 meters, corresponding to a frequency of 20.5 megahertz. Jansky's agenda, on behalf of his employer, Bell Telephone Laboratories, was to study any hisses from Earth-based radio sources that might contaminate terrestrial radio communications. This greatly resembles the task that Bell Labs gave Penzias and Wilson 35 years later, to find microwave noise in their receiver, as we heard in Chapter 3, which led to the discovery of the cosmic microwave background. By spending a couple of years painstakingly tracking and timing the static hiss that registered in his jury-rigged antenna, Jansky had discovered that radio waves emanate not just from local thunderstorms and other known terrestrial sources, but also from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That region of the sky swung by the telescope's field of view every 23 hours and 56 minutes. 
exactly the period of Earth's rotation in space, and thus exactly the time needed to return the galactic center to the same angle and elevation on the sky. Carl Jansky published his results under the title Electrical Disturbances, Apparently of Extraterrestrial Origin. With that observation, radio astronomy was born. But minus Jansky himself, Bell Labs retasked him, preventing him from pursuing the fruits of his own seminal discovery. A few years later, though, a self-starting American named Grote Reber from Wheaton, Illinois, built a 30-foot-wide metal dish radio telescope in his own backyard. In 1938, under nobody's employ, Reber confirmed Jansky's discovery and spent the next five years making low-resolution maps of the radio sky. Reber's telescope was small and crude by today's standards. Modern radio telescopes are quite another matter. Unbound by backyards, they're sometimes downright humongous. MK1, which began its working life in 1957, is the planet's first genuinely gigantic radio telescope, a single steerable 250-foot-wide solid steel dish at the Jodrell Bank Observatory near Manchester, England. A couple of months after MK1 opened for business, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, and Jodrell Bank's dish suddenly became just the thing to track the little orbiting hunk of hardware, making it the forerunner of today's deep space network for tracking planetary space probes. The world's largest radio telescope, completed in 2016, is called the 500-meter Aperture Spherical Radio Telescope, or FAST for short. It was built by China in their Guizhou province and is larger in area than 30 football fields. If aliens ever give us a call, the Chinese will be the first to know. Another variety of radio telescope is the interferometer, comprising arrays of identical dish antennas spread across swaths of countryside and electronically linked to work in concert. The result is a single coherent, super-high-resolution image of radio-emitting cosmic objects. Although supersize me was the unwritten motto for telescopes long before the fast food industry coined the slogan, radio interferometers form a jumbo class unto themselves. One of them, a very large array of radio dishes near Socorro, New Mexico, is officially called the Very Large Array, with 27 82-foot dishes positioned on tracks crossing 22 miles of desert plains. This observatory is so cosmogenic, it has appeared as a backdrop in the films 2010, The Year We Made Contact, 1984, Contact, 1997, and The Transformers, 2007. There's also the Very Long Baseline Array, with 10 82-foot dishes spanning 5,000 miles from Hawaii to the Virgin Islands, enabling the highest resolution of any radio telescope in the world. In the microwave band, relatively new to interferometers, we've got the 66 antennas of ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in the remote Andes Mountains of northern Chile. Tuned for wavelengths that range from fractions of a millimeter to several centimeters, ALMA gives astrophysicists high-resolution access to categories of cosmic action unseen in other bands, such as the structure of collapsing gas clouds as they become nurseries from which stars are born. ALMA's location is, by intention, 
the most arid landscape on Earth, three miles above sea level and well above the wettest clouds. Water may be fine for microwave cooking, but it's bad for astrophysicists because the water vapor in Earth's atmosphere chews up pristine microwave signals from across the galaxy and beyond. These two phenomena are, of course, related. Water is the most common ingredient in food, and microwave ovens primarily heat water. Taken together, you get the best indication that water absorbs microwave frequencies. So, if you want clean observations of cosmic objects, you must minimize the amount of water vapor between your telescope and the universe, just as Alma has done. At the ultra-short wavelength end of the electromagnetic spectrum, you find the high-frequency, high-energy gamma rays, with wavelengths measured in picometers. That's trillionths of a meter. Discovered in 1900, they were not detected from space until a new kind of telescope was placed aboard NASA's Explorer 11 satellite in 1961. Anybody who watches too many sci-fi movies knows that gamma rays are bad for you. You might turn green and muscular, or spider webs might squirt from your wrists. But they're also hard to trap. They pass right through ordinary lenses and mirrors. How then to observe them? The guts of Explorer 11's telescope held a device called a scintillator, which responds to incoming gamma rays by pumping out electrically charged particles. If you measure energies of the particles, you can tell what kind of high energy light created them. Two years later, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States signed the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited nuclear testing underwater, in the atmosphere, and in space, where nuclear fallout could spread and contaminate places outside your own country's perimeter. But this was the Cold War, a time when nobody believed anybody about anything. Invoking the military edict, trust but verify. The U.S. deployed a new series of satellites, the Vela's, to scan for gamma ray bursts that would result from Soviet nuclear tests. The satellites indeed found bursts of gamma rays almost daily, but Russia wasn't to blame. These came from deep space and were later shown to be the calling card of intermittent, distant, titanic stellar explosions across the universe, signaling the birth of gamma ray astrophysics. A new branch of study in my field. In 1994, NASA's Compton Gamma Ray Observatory detected something as unexpected as the Vela's discoveries: frequent flashes of gamma rays right near Earth's surface. They were sensibly dubbed terrestrial gamma ray flashes. Nuclear holocaust? No, as is evident from the fact that you're reading the sentence. Not all bursts of gamma rays are equally lethal, nor are they all of cosmic origin. In this case, at least 50 flashes emanate daily near the tops of thunderclouds, a split second before ordinary lightning bolts strike. Their origin remains a bit of a mystery, but the best explanation holds that in the electrical storm, free electrons accelerate to near the speed of light and then slam into the nuclei of atmospheric atoms, generating gamma rays. Today. Telescopes operate in every invisible part of the spectrum, some from the ground, but most from space, where a telescope's view is unimpeded by Earth's absorptive atmosphere. 
we can now observe phenomena ranging from low-frequency radio waves a dozen meters across, crest to crest, to high-frequency gamma rays, no longer than a quadrillionth of a meter. That rich palette of light supplies no end of astrophysical discoveries. Curious how much gas lurks among the stars and galaxies? Radio telescopes do that best. There is no knowledge of the cosmic background and no real understanding of the Big Bang without microwave telescopes. Want to peek at the stellar nurseries deep inside galactic gas clouds? Pay attention to what infrared telescopes do. How about emissions from the vicinity of ordinary black holes and supermassive black holes in the center of a galaxy? Ultraviolet and X-ray telescopes do that best. Want to watch the high-energy explosion of a giant star whose mass is as great as 40 suns? Catch the drama via gamma-ray telescopes. We've come a long way since Herschel's experiments with rays that were unfit for vision, empowering us to explore the universe for what it is, rather than for what it seems to be. Herschel would be proud. We achieved true cosmic vision only after seeing the unseeable, a dazzlingly rich collection of objects and phenomena across space and across time that we may now dream of in our philosophy. Chapter 10. Between the Planets From a distance, our solar system looks empty. If you enclosed it within a sphere, one large enough to contain the orbit of Neptune, the outermost planet, then the volume occupied by the Sun, all the planets, and their moons would take up a little more than one trillionth the enclosed space. But it's not empty. The space between the planets contains all manner of chunky rocks, pebbles, ice balls, dust, streams of charged particles, and far-flung probes. The space is also permeated by monstrous gravitational and magnetic fields. Interplanetary space is so not empty that Earth, during its 30-kilometer-per-second orbital journey, plows through hundreds of tons of meteors per day most of them no larger than a grain of sand. Nearly all of them burn in Earth's upper atmosphere, slamming into the air with so much energy that the debris vaporizes on contact. Our frail species evolved under this protective blanket. Larger golf ball-sized meteors heat fast but unevenly and often shatter into many smaller pieces before they vaporize. Still larger meteors singe their surface, but otherwise make it all the way to the ground intact. You'd think that by now, after 4.6 billion trips around the sun, Earth would have vacuumed up all possible debris in its orbital path. But things were once much worse. For a half billion years after the formation of the sun and its planets, so much junk rained down on Earth that heat from the persistent energy of impacts rendered Earth's atmosphere hot and our crust molten. One substantial hunk of junk led to the formation of the moon. The unexpected scarcity of iron and other high-mass elements in the moon, derived from lunar samples returned by Apollo astronauts, indicates that the moon most likely burst forth from Earth's iron-poor crust and mantle after a glancing collision with a wayward Mars-sized protoplanet. The orbiting debris from this encounter coalesced to form our lovely low-density satellite. Apart from this newsworthy event, 
The period of heavy bombardment that Earth endured during its infancy was not unique among the planets and other large bodies of the solar system. They each sustained similar damage, with the airless, erosionless surfaces of the Moon and Mercury preserving much of the cratered record from this period. Not only is the solar system scarred by the flotsam of its formation, but nearby interplanetary space also contains rocks of all sizes that would jettison from Mars, the Moon, and Earth by the ground's recoil from high-speed impacts. Computer studies of meteor strikes demonstrate conclusively that surface rocks near impact zones can get thrust upward with enough speed to escape the body's gravitational tether. At the rate we are discovering meteorites on Earth, whose origin is Mars, we conclude that about a thousand tons of Martian rocks rain down on Earth each year. Perhaps the same amount reaches Earth from the Moon. In retrospect, we didn't have to go to the Moon to retrieve Moon rocks. Plenty come to us, although they were not of our choosing, and we didn't yet know it during the Apollo program. Most of the Solar System's asteroids live and work in the main asteroid belt, a roughly flat zone between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. By tradition, the discoverers get to name their asteroids whatever they like, often drawn by artists as a region of cluttered, meandering rocks in the plane of the solar system, the asteroid belt's total mass is less than 5% that of the Moon, which is itself barely more than 1% of Earth's mass. Sounds insignificant, but accumulated perturbations of their orbits continually create a deadly subset, perhaps a few thousand, whose eccentric paths intersect Earth's orbit, a simple calculation reveals that most of them will hit Earth within a hundred million years. The ones larger than about a kilometer across will collide with enough energy to destabilize Earth's ecosystem and put most of Earth's land species at risk of extinction. That would be bad. Asteroids are not the only space objects that pose a risk to life on Earth. The Kuiper Belt is a comet-strewn swath of circular real estate that begins just beyond the orbit of Neptune, includes Pluto, and extends perhaps as far again from Neptune as Neptune is from the Sun. The Dutch-born American astronomer Gerard Kuiper advanced the idea that in the cold depths of space beyond the orbit of Neptune, there reside frozen leftovers from the formation of the solar system. Without a massive planet upon which to fall, most of these comets will orbit the Sun for billions of years. As is true for the asteroid belt, some objects of the Kuiper belt travel on eccentric paths that cross the orbits of other planets. Pluto and its ensemble of siblings called Plutinos cross Neptune's path around the Sun. Other Kuiper belt objects plunge all the way down to the inner solar system, crossing planetary orbits with abandon. This subset includes Halley, the most famous comet of them all. Far beyond the Kuiper Belt, extending halfway to the nearest stars, lives a spherical reservoir of comets called the Oort Cloud, named for Jan Oort, the Dutch astrophysicist who first deduced its existence. This zone is responsible for the long-period comets, those with orbital periods far longer than a human lifetime. Unlike Kuiper Belt comets, Oort cloud comets can rain down on the inner solar system from any angle and from any direction, 
The two brightest of the 1990s, Comets Hale-Bopp and Hyakutake, were both from the Oort cloud and are not coming back anytime soon. If we had eyes that could see magnetic fields, Jupiter would look ten times larger than the full moon in the sky. Spacecraft that visit Jupiter must be designed to remain unaffected by this powerful force. As the English physicist Michael Faraday demonstrated in the 1800s, if you pass a wire across a magnetic field, you generate a voltage difference along the wire's length. For this reason, fast-moving metal space probes will have electrical currents induced within them. Meanwhile, these currents generate magnetic fields of their own that interact with the ambient magnetic field in ways that retard the space probe's motion. Last I had kept count, there were 56 moons among the planets in the solar system. Then I woke up one morning to learn that another dozen had been discovered around Saturn. After that incident, I decided to no longer keep track. All I care about now is whether any of them would be fun places to visit or to study. By some measures, the solar system's moons are more fascinating than the planets they orbit. Earth's moon is about one-four-hundredth the diameter of the sun, but it's also one-four-hundredth as far from us, making the sun and the moon the same size on the sky, a coincidence not shared by any other planet-moon combination in the solar system, allowing for uniquely photogenic total solar eclipses. Earth also has tidally locked the moon, leaving it with identical periods of rotation on its axis and revolution around Earth. Wherever and whenever this happens, the locked moon shows only one face to its host planet. Jupiter's system of moons is replete with oddballs. Io, Jupiter's closest moon, is tidally locked and structurally stressed by interactions with Jupiter and with other moons, pumping enough heat into the little orb to render molten its interior rocks. Io is the most volcanically active place in the solar system. Jupiter's moon Europa has enough H2O that its heating mechanism, the same one at work on Io, has melted the subsurface ice, leaving a warmed ocean below. If ever there was a next best place to look for life, it's here. An artist co-worker of mine once asked whether alien life forms from Europa would be called Europeans. The absence of any other plausible answer forced me to say yes. Pluto's largest moon, Charon, is so big and close to Pluto that Pluto and Charon have each tidally locked the other. Their rotation periods and their periods of revolution are identical. We call this a double tidal lock, which sounds like a yet-to-be-invented wrestling hold. By convention, moons are named for Greek personalities in the life of the Greek counterpart to the Roman god after whom the planet itself was named. The classical gods led complicated social lives, so there's no shortage of characters from which to draw. The lone exception to this rule applies to the moons of Uranus, which are named for assorted protagonists in British lit, William Herschel was the first person to discover a planet beyond those easily visible to the naked eye, and he was ready to name it after the king, under whom he faithfully served. Had Herschel succeeded, the planet list would read Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, 
and George. Fortunately, clearer heads prevailed and the classical name Uranus was adopted some years later. But his original suggestion to name the moons after characters in William Shakespeare's plays and Alexander Pope's poems remains the tradition to this day. Among its 27 moons, we find Ariel, Cordelia, Desdemona, Juliet, Ophelia, Portia, Puck, Umbriel, and Miranda. The sun loses material from its surface at a rate of more than a million tons per second. We call this the solar wind, which takes the form of high-energy charged particles. Traveling up to a thousand miles per second, these particles stream through space and are deflected by planetary magnetic fields. The particles spiral down toward the north and south magnetic poles, forcing collisions with gas molecules and leaving the atmosphere aglow with colorful aurora. The Hubble Space Telescope has spotted aurora near the poles of both Saturn and Jupiter, and on Earth, the aurora borealis and australis, the northern and southern lights, serve as intermittent reminders of how nice it is to have a protective atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere is commonly described as extending dozens of miles above Earth's surface. Satellites in low Earth orbit typically travel between 100 and 400 miles up, completing an orbit in about 90 minutes. While you can't breathe at those altitudes, some atmospheric molecules remain, enough to slowly drain orbital energy from unsuspecting satellites. To combat this drag, satellites in low orbit require intermittent boosts, lest they fall back to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. An alternative way to define the edge of our atmosphere is to ask where its density of gas molecules equals the density of gas molecules in interplanetary space. Under that definition, Earth's atmosphere extends thousands of miles. Orbiting high above this level, 23,000 miles up, one-tenth of the distance to the moon, are the communication satellites. At this special altitude, Earth's atmosphere is not only irrelevant, but the speed of the satellite is low enough for it to require a full day to complete one revolution around Earth. With an orbit precisely matching the rotation rate of Earth, these satellites appear to hover, which makes them ideal for relaying signals from one part of Earth's surface to another. Newton's laws specifically state that while the gravity of a planet gets weaker and weaker the farther from it you travel, there is no distance where the force of gravity reaches zero. The planet Jupiter, with its mighty gravitational field, bats out of harm's way many comets that would otherwise wreak havoc on the inner solar system. Jupiter acts as a gravitational shield for Earth a burly big brother, allowing long hundred-million-year stretches of relative peace and quiet on Earth. Without Jupiter's protection, complex life would have a hard time becoming interestingly complex, always living at risk of extinction from a devastating impact. We have exploited the gravitational fields of planets for nearly every probe launched into space. The Cassini probe, for example, which visited Saturn, was gravitationally assisted twice by Venus, once by Earth on a return flyby, and once by Jupiter. Like a multi-cushion billiard shot, trajectories from one planet to another are common. Our tiny probes would not otherwise have enough speed and energy from our rockets to reach their destination. 
I am now accountable for some of the solar system's interplanetary debris. In November 2000, the main belt asteroid 1994 KA, discovered by David Levy and Carolyn Shoemaker, was named 13123 Tyson in my honor. While I enjoyed the distinction, there's no particular reason to get big-headed about it. Plenty of asteroids have familiar names, such as Jody, Harriet, and Thomas. There are even asteroids out there named Merlin, James Bond, and Santa. Now, in the hundreds of thousands, the asteroid count might soon challenge our capacity to name them. Whether or not that day arrives, I take comfort knowing that my chunk of cosmic debris is not alone as it litters the space between the planets, being joined by a long list of other chunks named for real and fictional people. I'm also glad that, at the moment, my asteroid is not headed towards Earth. Chapter 11 Exoplanet Earth Whether you prefer to sprint, swim, walk, or crawl from one place to another on Earth, you can enjoy close-up views of our planet's unlimited supply of things to notice. You might see a vein of pink limestone on the wall of a canyon, a ladybug eating an aphid on the stem of a rose, a clamshell poking out from the sand. All you have to do is look. From the window of an ascending jetliner, those surface details rapidly disappear. No aphid appetizers, no curious clams. Reach cruising altitude around seven miles up, and identifying major roadways becomes a challenge. Detail continues to vanish as you rise into space. From the window of the International Space Station, which orbits about 250 miles up, you might find Paris, London, New York, and Los Angeles in the daytime, but only because you learned where they are in geography class. At night, their sprawling cityscapes present an obvious glow. By day, contrary to common wisdom, you probably won't see the Great Pyramids at Giza, and you certainly won't see the Great Wall of China. Their obscurity is partly the result of having been made from the soil and stone of the surrounding landscape. And although the Great Wall is thousands of miles long, it's only about 20 feet wide, much narrower than the U.S. interstate highways you can barely see from a transcontinental jet. From orbit with the unaided eye, you would have seen smoke plumes rising from the oil field fires in Kuwait at the end of the first Persian Gulf War in 1991, and smoke from the burning World Trade Center towers in New York City on September 11, 2001. You will also notice the green-brown boundaries between swaths of irrigated and arid land. Beyond that shortlist, there's not much else made by humans that's identifiable from hundreds of miles up in the sky. You can see plenty of natural scenery, though, including hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, ice flows in the North Atlantic, and volcanic eruptions wherever they occur. From the moon, a quarter million miles away, New York, Paris, and the rest of Earth's urban glitter doesn't even show up as a twinkle. But from your lunar vantage, you can still watch major weather fronts move across the planet. From Mars, at its closest, some 35 million miles away, massive snow-capped mountain chains and the edges of Earth's continents would be visible through a large backyard telescope. Travel out to Neptune, 3 billion miles away, 
just down the block on a cosmic scale, and the sun itself becomes a thousand times dimmer, now occupying a thousandth the area on the daytime sky that it occupies when seen from Earth. And what of Earth itself? It's a speck, no brighter than a dim star, all but lost in the glare of the sun. A celebrated photograph taken in 1990 from just beyond Neptune's orbit by the Voyager 1 spacecraft shows just how underwhelming Earth looks from deep space. A pale blue dot, as the American astrophysicist Carl Sagan called it. And that's generous. Without the help of a caption, you might not even know it's there. What would happen if some big-brained aliens from the great beyond scanned the skies with their naturally superb visual organs, further aided by alien state-of-the-art optical accessories? What visible features of planet Earth might they detect? Blueness would be first and foremost. Water covers more than two-thirds of Earth's surface. The Pacific Ocean alone spans nearly an entire side of the planet. Any beings with enough equipment and expertise to detect our planet's color would surely infer the presence of water, the third most abundant molecule in the universe. If the resolution of their equipment were high enough, the aliens would see more than just a pale blue dot. They would see intricate coastlines, too, strongly suggesting that the water is liquid. And smart aliens would surely know that if a planet has liquid water, then the planet's temperature and atmospheric pressure fall within a well-determined range. Earth's distinctive polar ice caps, which grow and shrink from the seasonal temperature variations, could also be seen using visible light. So could our planet's 24-hour rotation, because recognizable landmasses rotate into view at predictable intervals of time. The aliens would also see major weather systems come and go. With careful study, they could readily distinguish features related to clouds in the atmosphere from features related to the surface of Earth itself. Time for a reality check. The nearest exoplanet, the nearest planet in orbit around a star that is not the Sun, can be found in our neighbor star system, Alpha Centauri, about four light years from us and visible mostly from our southern hemisphere. Most of the cataloged exoplanets lie from dozens up to hundreds of light years away. Earth's brightness is less than one billionth that of the Sun, and our planet's proximity to the Sun would make it extremely hard for anybody to see Earth directly with a visible light telescope. It's like trying to detect the light of a firefly in the vicinity of a Hollywood searchlight. So if aliens have found us, they are likely looking in wavelengths other than visible light, like infrared, where our brightness relative to the sun is a bit better than invisible light. Or else their engineers are adapting some other strategy altogether. Maybe they're doing what some of our own planet hunters typically do, monitoring stars to see if they jiggle at regular intervals. A star's periodic jiggle betrays the existence of an orbiting planet that may be too dim to see directly. Contrary to what most people suppose, a planet does not orbit its host star. Instead, both the planet and its host star revolve around their common center of mass. The more massive the planet, the larger the star's response must be, and the more measurable the jiggle gets when you analyze the star's light. Unfortunately for planet-hunting aliens, Earth is puny, so the sun barely budges, which would further challenge alien engineers.
NASA's Kepler telescope, designed and tuned to discover Earth-like planets around Sun-like stars, invoked yet another method of detection, mightily adding to the exoplanet catalog. Kepler searched for stars whose total brightness dropped slightly and at regular intervals. In these cases, Kepler's line of sight is just right to see a star get dimmer by a tiny fraction due to one of its own planets crossing directly in front of the host star. With this method, you can't see the planet itself. You can't even see any features on the star's surface. Kepler simply tracked changes in a star's total light, but added thousands of exoplanets to the catalog, including hundreds of multi-planet star systems. From these data, you also learn the size of the exoplanet, its orbital period, and its orbital distance from the host star. You can always make an educated inference on the planet's mass. If you're wondering, when Earth passes in front of the Sun, which is always happening for some line of sight in the galaxy, we block one ten-thousandth of the Sun's surface, thereby briefly dimming the Sun's total light by one ten-thousandth of its normal brightness. Fine as it goes. They'll discover that Earth exists, but learn nothing about happenings on Earth's surface. Radio waves and microwaves might work. Maybe our eavesdropping aliens have something like the 500-meter radio telescope in the Guizhou province of China. If they do, and if they tune to the right frequencies, they'll certainly notice Earth, or rather, they'll notice our modern civilization as one of the most luminous sources in the sky. Consider everything we've got that generates radio waves and microwaves. Not only traditional radio itself, but also broadcast television, mobile phones, microwave ovens, garage door openers, car door unlockers, commercial radar, military radar, and communication satellites. We're ablaze in long frequency waves. Spectacular evidence that something unusual is going on here, because in their natural state, small rocky planets emit hardly any radio waves at all. So if those alien eavesdroppers turn their own version of a radio telescope in our direction, they might infer that our planet hosts technology. One complication, though, other interpretations are possible. Maybe they wouldn't be able to distinguish Earth signals from those of the larger planets in our solar system, all of which are sizable sources of radio waves, especially Jupiter. Maybe they think we were a new kind of odd radio-intensive planet. Maybe they wouldn't be able to distinguish Earth's radio emissions from those of the Sun, forcing them to conclude that the Sun is a new kind of odd, radio-intensive star. Astrophysicists right here on Earth, at the University of Cambridge in England, were similarly stumped back in 1967. While surveying the skies with a radio telescope for any source of strong radio waves, Anthony Hewish and his team discovered something extremely odd an object pulsing at precise repeating intervals of slightly more than a second. Jocelyn Bell, a graduate student of Hewish's at the time, was the first to notice it. Soon, Bell's colleagues established that the pulses came from a great distance. The thought that the signal was technological, another culture beaming evidence of its activities across space, was irresistible. As Bell recounts, we had no proof that it was an entirely natural radio emission. Here was I trying to get a Ph.D. out of a new technique, and some silly lot of little green men had to choose my aerial and my frequency to communicate with us. Within a few days, however, she discovered other repeating signals coming from other places in our Milky Way galaxy. Bell and her associates realized 
they discovered a new class of cosmic object, a star made entirely of neutrons that pulses with radio waves for every rotation it executes. Hewish and Bell sensibly named them pulsars. Turns out, intercepting radio waves isn't the only way to be Snoopy. There's also cosmochemistry. The chemical analysis of planetary atmospheres has become a lively field of modern astrophysics. As you might guess, cosmochemistry depends on spectroscopy, the analysis of light by means of a spectrometer. By exploiting the tools and tactics of spectroscopists, cosmochemists can infer the presence of life on an exoplanet regardless of whether that life has sentience, intelligence, or technology. The method works because every element, every molecule, no matter where it exists in the universe, absorbs, emits, reflects, and scatters light in a unique way. And, as already discussed, pass that light through a spectrometer, and you'll find features that can rightly be called chemical fingerprints. The most visible fingerprints are made by the chemicals most excited by the pressure and temperature of their environment. Planetary atmospheres are rich with such features, and if a planet is teeming with flora and fauna, its atmosphere will be rich with biomarkers, spectral evidence of life, whether biogenic, produced by any or all life forms, anthropogenic, produced by the widespread species Homo sapiens, or technogenic, produced only by technology, such rampant evidence will be hard to conceal. Unless they happen to be born with built-in spectroscopic sensors, our space-snooping aliens would need to build a spectrometer to read our fingerprints. But above all, Earth would have to cross in front of the sun or some other source, permitting light to pass through our atmosphere and continue on to the aliens. That way, the chemicals in Earth's atmosphere could interact with the light leaving their marks for all to see. Some molecules, ammonia, carbon dioxide, water, show up abundantly in the universe, whether life is present or not. But other molecules thrive in the presence of life itself. Another readily detected biomarker is Earth's sustained level of the molecule methane, two-thirds of which is produced by human-related activities, such as fuel oil production, rice cultivation, sewage, and the burps and farts of domestic livestock. Natural sources comprising the remaining third include decomposing vegetation in wetlands and termite effluences. Meanwhile, in places where free oxygen is scarce, methane does not always require life to form. At this very moment, astrobiologists are arguing over the exact origin of trace methane on Mars and the copious quantities of methane on Saturn's moon Titan where cows and termites we presume do not dwell. If the aliens track our nighttime side while we orbit our host star, they might notice a surge of sodium from our widespread use of sodium vapor lamps that switch on at dusk in urban and suburban municipalities. Most telling, however, would be all our free-floating oxygen, which constitutes a full fifth of our atmosphere. Oxygen, which, after hydrogen and helium, is the third most abundant element in the cosmos, is chemically active and bonds readily with atoms of hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, silicon, sulfur, iron, and so on. It even bonds with itself. Thus, for oxygen to exist in a steady state, something must be liberating it as fast as it's being consumed. Here on Earth, the liberation is traceable to life. 
Photosynthesis, carried out by plants and many bacteria, creates free oxygen in the oceans and in the atmosphere. Free oxygen, in turn, enables the existence of oxygen-metabolizing life, including us and practically every other creature in the animal kingdom. We Earthlings already know the significance of our planet's distinctive chemical fingerprints, but distant aliens who come upon us will have to interpret their findings and test their assumptions. Must the periodic appearance of sodium be technogenic? Free oxygen is surely biogenic. How about methane? It, too, is chemically unstable. And yes, some of it is anthropogenic. But as we've seen, methane has non-living agents as well. If all the aliens decide that Earth's chemical features are sure evidence of life, maybe they'll wonder if the life is intelligent. Presumably the aliens communicate with one another. And perhaps they'll presume that other intelligent life forms communicate too. Maybe that's when they'll decide to eavesdrop on Earth with their radio telescopes to see what part of the electromagnetic spectrum its inhabitants have mastered. So, whether the aliens explore with chemistry or with radio waves, they might come to the same conclusion. A planet where there's advanced technology must be populated with intelligent life forms who may occupy themselves discovering how the universe works and how to apply its laws for personal or public gain. Looking more closely at Earth's atmospheric fingerprints, human biomarkers will also include sulfuric, carbonic, and nitric acids and other components of smog from the burning of fossil fuels. If the curious aliens happen to be socially, culturally, and technologically more advanced than we are, then they will surely interpret these biomarkers as convincing evidence for the absence of intelligent life on Earth. The first exoplanet was discovered in 1995, and as of this writing, the tally is rising through 3,000, most found in a small pocket of the Milky Way around the solar system. So there's plenty more where they came from. After all, our galaxy contains more than a hundred billion stars, and the known universe harbors some hundred billion galaxies. Our search for life in the universe drives the search for exoplanets, some of which resemble Earth, not in detail, of course, but in overall properties. Latest estimates, extrapolating from the current catalogs, suggest as many as 40 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way alone. Those are the planets our descendants might want to visit someday, by choice, if not by necessity. Chapter 12 Reflections on the Cosmic Perspective Of all the sciences cultivated by mankind, astronomy is acknowledged to be, and undoubtedly is, the most sublime, the most interesting, and the most useful. For, by knowledge derived from this science, not only the bulk of the earth is discovered, but our very faculties are enlarged with the grandeur of the ideas it conveys, our minds exalted above their low, contracted prejudices. James Ferguson, 1757 Long before anyone knew that the universe had a beginning, before we knew that the nearest large galaxy lies two million light-years from Earth, before we knew how stars work or whether atoms exist, James Ferguson's enthusiastic introduction to his favorite science rang true. Yet his words, apart from their 18th-century flourish, could have been written yesterday. 
But who gets to think that way? Who gets to celebrate this cosmic view of life? Not the migrant farm worker, not the sweatshop worker, certainly not the homeless person rummaging through the trash for food. You need the luxury of time not spent on mere survival. You need to live in a nation whose government values the search to understand humanity's place in the universe. You need a society in which intellectual pursuit can take you to the frontiers of discovery and in which news of your discoveries can be routinely disseminated. By those measures, most citizens of industrialized nations do quite well. Yet the cosmic view comes with a hidden cost. When I travel thousands of miles to spend a few moments in the fast-moving shadow of the moon during a total solar eclipse, sometimes I lose sight of Earth. When I pause and reflect on our expanding universe, with its galaxies hurtling away from one another, embedded within the ever-stretching four-dimensional fabric of space and time, sometimes I forget that uncounted people walk this earth without food or shelter, and that children are disproportionately represented among them. When I pore over the data that establish the mysterious presence of dark matter and dark energy throughout the universe, sometimes I forget that every day, every 24-hour rotation of Earth, people kill and get killed in the name of someone else's conception of God, and that some people who do not kill in the name of God kill in the name of needs or wants of political dogma. When I track the orbits of asteroids, comets, and planets, each one a pirouetting dancer in a cosmic ballet, choreographed by the forces of gravity, sometimes I forget that too many people act in wanton disregard for the delicate interplay of Earth's atmosphere, oceans, and land, with consequences that our children and our children's children will witness and pay for with their health and well-being. And sometimes I forget that powerful people rarely do all they can to help those who cannot help themselves. I occasionally forget these things because however big the world is, in our hearts, our minds, and our outsized digital maps, the universe is even bigger. A depressing thought to some, but a liberating thought to me. Consider an adult who tends to the traumas of a child. Spilled milk, a broken toy, a scraped knee. As adults, we know that kids have no clue of what constitutes a genuine problem, because inexperience greatly limits their childhood perspective. Children do not yet know that the world doesn't revolve around them. As grown-ups, dare we admit to ourselves that we, too, have a collective immaturity of view? Dare we admit that our thoughts and behaviors spring from a belief that the world revolves around us? Apparently not. Yet evidence abounds. Part the curtains of society's racial, ethnic, religious, national, and cultural conflicts, and you find the human ego turning the knobs and pulling the levers. Now imagine a world in which everyone, but especially people with power and influence, holds an expanded view of our place in the cosmos. With that perspective, our problems would shrink or never arise at all and we could celebrate our earthly differences while shunning the behavior of our predecessors who slaughtered one another because of them.
Back in January 2000, the newly rebuilt Hayden Planetarium in New York City featured a space show titled Passport to the Universe, which took visitors on a virtual zoom from the planetarium out to the edge of the cosmos. En route, the audience viewed Earth, and then the solar system, then watched the hundred billion stars of the Milky Way galaxy shrink, in turn, to barely visible dots on the planetarium's dome. Within a month of opening day, I received a letter from an Ivy League professor of psychology, whose expertise was in things that make people feel insignificant. I never knew one could specialize in such a field. He wanted to administer a before-and-after questionnaire to visitors, assessing the depth of their depression after viewing the show. Passport to the Universe, he wrote, elicited the most dramatic feelings of smallness and insignificance he had ever experienced. How could that be? Every time I see the space show, and others we've produced, I feel alive and spirited and connected. I also feel large, knowing that the goings-on within the three-pound human brain are what enabled us to figure out our place in the universe. Allow me to suggest that it's the professor, not I, who has misread nature. His ego was unjustifiably big to begin with. Inflated by delusions of significance and fed by cultural assumptions that human beings are more important than everything else in the universe. In all fairness to the fellow, powerful forces in society leave most of us susceptible. As was I, until the day I learned in biology class that more bacteria live and work in one centimeter of my colon than the number of people who have ever existed in the world. That kind of information makes you think twice about who or what is actually in charge. From that day on, I began to think of people not as masters of space and time, but as participants in a great cosmic chain of being, with a direct genetic link across species, both living and extinct, extending back nearly four billion years to the earliest single-celled organisms on Earth. I know what you're thinking. We're smarter than bacteria. No doubt about it, we're smarter than every other living creature that ever ran, crawled, or slithered on Earth. But how smart is that? We cook our food, we compose poetry and music, we do art and science, we're good at math. Even if you're bad at math, you're probably much better at it than the smartest chimpanzee, whose genetic identity varies in only trifling ways from ours. Try as they might. Primatologists will never get a chimpanzee to do long division or trigonometry. If small genetic differences between us and our fellow apes account for what appears to be a vast difference in intelligence, then maybe that difference in intelligence is not so vast after all. Imagine a life form whose brain power is to ours as ours is to a chimpanzee's. To such a species, our highest mental achievements would be trivial. Their toddlers, instead of learning their ABCs on Sesame Street, would learn multivariable calculus on Boolean Boulevard. Our most complex theorems, our deepest philosophies, the cherished works of our most creative artists, would be projects their school kids brought home for mom and dad to display on the refrigerator door with a magnet. These creatures would study Stephen Hawking, who occupies the same endowed professorship once held by Isaac Newton at the University of Cambridge, because he's slightly more clever than other humans, 
Why? He can do theoretical astrophysics and other rudimentary calculations in his head, like their little Timmy, who just came home from alien preschool. If a huge genetic gap separated us from our closest relative in the animal kingdom, we could justifiably celebrate our brilliance. We might be entitled to walk around thinking we're distant and distinct from our fellow creatures. But no such gap exists. Instead, we are one with the rest of nature, fitting neither above nor below, but within. Need more ego softeners? Simple comparisons of quantity, size, and scale do the job well. Take water. It's common and vital. There are more molecules of water in an eight-ounce cup of the stuff than there are cups of water in all the world's oceans. Every cup that passes through a single person and eventually rejoins the world's water supply holds enough molecules to mix 1,500 of them into every other cup of water in the world. No way around it. Some of the water you just drank passed through the kidneys of Socrates, Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc. How about air? Also vital. A single breathful draws in more air molecules than there are breathfuls of air in Earth's entire atmosphere. That means some of the air you just breathed passed through the lungs of Napoleon, Beethoven, Lincoln, and Billy the Kid. Time to get cosmic. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on any beach. More stars than seconds have passed since Earth formed. More stars than words and sounds ever uttered by all the humans who ever lived. Want a sweeping view of the past? Our unfolding cosmic perspective takes you there. Light takes time to reach Earth's observatories from the depths of space, and so you see objects and phenomena not as they are, but as they once were, back almost to the beginning of time itself. Within that horizon of reckoning, cosmic evolution unfolds continuously in full view. Want to know what we're made of? Again, the cosmic perspective offers a bigger answer than you might expect. The chemical elements of the universe are forged in the fires of high-mass stars that end their lives in titanic explosions, enriching their host galaxies with the chemical arsenal of life as we know it. The result? The four most common chemically active elements in the universe, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, are the four most common elements of life on Earth, with carbon serving as the foundation of biochemistry. We do not simply live in this universe. The universe lives within us. That being said, we may not even be of this Earth. Several separate lines of research, when considered together, have forced investigators to reassess who we think we are and where we think we came from. As we've already seen, when a large asteroid strikes a planet, the surrounding areas can recoil from the impact energy, catapulting rocks into space. From there, they can travel to and land on other planetary surfaces. Second, microorganisms can be hardy. Extremophiles on Earth can survive wide range of temperature, pressure, and radiation encountered during space travel. If the rocky ejecta from an impact hails from a planet with life, then microscopic fauna could have stowed away in the rock's nooks and crannies. Third, 
Recent evidence suggests that shortly after the formation of our solar system, Mars was wet and perhaps fertile, even before Earth was. Collectively, these findings tell us it's conceivable that life began on Mars and later seeded life on Earth, a process known as panspermia. So all Earthlings might, just might, be descendants of Martians. Again and again, across the centuries, cosmic discoveries have demoted our self-image. Earth was once assumed to be astronomically unique, until astronomers learned that Earth is just another planet orbiting the sun. Then we presumed the sun was unique, until we learned that the countless stars of the night sky are suns themselves. Then we presumed our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the entire known universe, until we established that the countless fuzzy things in the sky are other galaxies dotting the landscape of our known universe. Today, how easy it is to presume that one universe is all there is. Yet emerging theories of modern cosmology, as well as the continually reaffirmed improbability that anything is unique, require that we remain open to the latest assault on our plea for distinctiveness, the multiverse. The cosmic perspective flows from fundamental knowledge, but it's more than about what you know. It's also about having the wisdom and insight to apply that knowledge to assessing our place in the universe. And its attributes are clear. The cosmic perspective comes from the frontiers of science, yet it is not solely the provenance of the scientist. It belongs to everyone. The cosmic perspective is humble. The cosmic perspective is spiritual, even redemptive, but not religious. The cosmic perspective enables us to grasp in the same thought the large and the small. The cosmic perspective opens our minds to extraordinary ideas, but does not leave them so open that our brains spill out, making us susceptible to believing anything we're told. The cosmic perspective opens our eyes to the universe, not as a benevolent cradle designed to nurture life, but as a cold, lonely, hazardous place forcing us to reassess the value of all humans to one another. The cosmic perspective shows Earth to be a moat, but it's a precious moat, and for the moment, it's the only home we have. The cosmic perspective finds beauty in the images of planets, moons, stars, and nebulae, but also celebrates the laws of physics that shape them. The cosmic perspective enables us to see beyond our circumstances, allowing us to transcend the primal search for food, shelter, and a mate. The cosmic perspective reminds us that in space where there is no air, a flag will not wave, an indication that perhaps flag-waving and space exploration do not mix. The cosmic perspective not only embraces our genetic kinship with all life on Earth, but also values our chemical kinship with any yet-to-be-discovered life in the universe, as well as our atomic kinship with the universe itself. At least once a week, if not once a day, we might each ponder what cosmic truths lie undiscovered before us, perhaps awaiting the arrival of a clever thinker, an ingenious experiment, or an innovative space mission to reveal them. We might further ponder how those discoveries may one day transform life on Earth. 
Absent such curiosity, we are no different from the provincial farmer who expresses no need to venture beyond the county line, because his forty acres meet all his needs. Yet if all our predecessors had felt that way, the farmer would instead be a cave-dweller chasing down his dinner with a stick and a rock. During our brief stay on planet Earth, we owe ourselves and our descendants the opportunity to explore, in part because it's fun to do, but there's a far nobler reason. The day our knowledge of the cosmos ceases to expand, we risk regressing to the childish view that the universe figuratively and literally revolves around us. In that bleak world, arms-bearing, resource-hungry people and nations would be prone to act on their low-contracted prejudices, and that would be the last gasp of human enlightenment. Until the rise of a visionary new culture that could once again embrace, rather than fear, the cosmic perspective. Acknowledgements My tireless literary editors over the years these essays were written included Ellen Goldenson and Avis Lang at Natural History Magazine, both of whom ensured that at all times I said what I meant and meant what I said. My scientific editor was friend and Princeton colleague Robert Lupton, who knew more than I did in all places where it mattered most. I also thank Betsy Lerner for suggestions to the manuscript that greatly improved its arc of content. This concludes the reading of Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Copyright 2017 by Neil deGrasse Tyson. This book was read by Neil deGrasse Tyson. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with W. W. Norton and Company, Incorporated, and was produced in 2017 by Blackstone Audio Inc., which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audio Inc. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you.